Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The Lord then said to Noah, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Genesis chapter 7 Verses 1 through 3, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today, we're going to continue our discussion about Noah and the Flood that's described in chapters 6 through 9 of the book of Genesis. The story is probably one of the best known of the Bible stories. It's so well-known that it has been retold in countless forms, especially on television and in the movies. But the TV and movie writers don't always get it right, do they, R.D.? Well, hello today to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. And no, you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, the TV, movie writers, other people who tell the story in the popular culture don't always get the story right. And in your view... One of the things the popular media retailers get wrong the most is what actually happened with the animals, correct? Correct. So today on Anchored by Truth, we want to spend the whole show just talking about what really happened with the animals. You know, to do this topic justice would probably take more than just one show, but there's an awful lot of good information about this topic, about the animals, how they got on the ark, what happened to them while they were on the ark, what happened after they got off the ark. There's a lot of good information about this topic out there on the internet. So our goal for today is not to be exhaustive to cover every single thing that we could about the animals and the ark. Our goal is just to lay out some of the major points that demonstrate that the Bible's report about the Noahic flood can be reasonably treated as literal history. Okay. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to get to. So let's jump right in. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start by taking a look at just an example of one of the more popular mischaracterizations that is often used to try to discredit the Bible story, especially its historicity. You're talking about the supposedly clever little quip that you've heard on the popular TV comedy show, The Big Bang Theory. What was it that you heard? Well, just about everybody who's seen an episode of The Big Bang Theory knows that Sheldon is the genius physicist on the show. And everybody who's watched the show knows that Sheldon is a determined atheist, but he has a mother who is a devout Christian. So one time when he was on the show talking about his mother, Sheldon acknowledges that his mother is a very sweet woman, but he says that his mother believes, and I'm quoting, that all the animals in the world got on one boat. Now, of course, the line is intended to be comedic, 
but the writers would not have included the line in their episode of The Big Bang Theory if they wanted to make sure that the show's audience got a good laugh at the simpletons who accept the Bible's flood story as literal history. Well, popular culture poking fun at Christians isn't exactly news, but we readily acknowledge that there are legitimate questions about the animals that were on the ark, and they do merit an explanation. And that's the biggest reason we do Anchored by Truth, to provide a starting point for listeners to understand that there are reasonable answers to reasonable questions. And when you understand the answers, it reinforces the authenticity of the biblical account. Precisely. So, let's look at a few of the obvious questions that are pertinent to the ark and the animals. I mean, one of the first questions is obviously, how many animals were there on the ark? And a second question is how all the biological diversity that we see on the earth today could have arisen from the animals that disembarked from the ark. So, let's start with the first question. Which animals actually got on the ark? Now, that question has two sides. One part is the animals that got on the ark. The second is the animals that didn't make it onto the ark. So let's make one obvious observation right away. The only animals that the Bible refers to as being on the ark were land animals and birds. There was no reason for fish and other sea creatures, including marine mammals, to be on board the ark. Even though many sea creatures would have died as a result of the extremely rough seas, obviously a large number of sea creatures would have been able to survive. But there is a question about the distinction between how freshwater species and saltwater species could both have survived in the same body of water. Well, there are a few possibilities to address the saltwater versus freshwater dilemma. First, it is well known that there are many species of fish that can survive in a wide variety of salinity conditions. Second, experiments with fish have shown that even varieties of fish that are thought to be exclusively freshwater can survive in seawater, and vice versa. One researcher took a species of cichlids, which is a freshwater species of fish found in three continents. He put them in seawater, and not only were they able to survive in the seawater, but they lived and reproduced normally in the seawater. So there are some fish that even though they normally would be freshwater inhabitants, put them in salt water and they can do just fine. Third, since the density of salt water is heavier than freshwater, it's possible that for a time during the ocean that was covering the earth, that there were different layers of salinity that were formed in the water covering the earth. There's a very well-known phenomenon called a halocline, where a vertical salinity gradient persists in a body of water. So it's possible that this occurred in the water that was covering the earth, that the water simply separated itself by virtue of the natural density into various layers, and that each type of fish simply inhabited the part of the water layer that was most comfortable for it. So it's very possible that as the rainwater came down, which would have been fresh water, and it mixed with the ocean water, which would have been previously salt water, It's possible that as all that mixing was going on, it's possible that what simply happened was that the water, because of the density differences in the various kinds of salinity, it's very possible that the water simply segregated itself into various layers, and as we said, the fish just went into that level within the ocean that they preferred based on the salinity. Okay, that would seem to address how various fish species were able to persist during the period the water covered the earth. 
What about after the floodwaters receded and there was a distinction between freshwater lakes and the oceans that remained? Well, obviously at some time there were waters that were covering the entire earth, so at some point those waters began to recede. Well, as the waters receded, some of the fish would have just naturally, by happenstance of nothing else, wound up in the kind of water they preferred. But again, it's well known that many fish can survive in a wide range of salinities, provided they're given the chance to acclimatize gradually. And that would have been the case as the dry land was appearing gradually across the earth, and the final bodies of water that were going to remain on the earth became evident. It would not have all happened instantaneously. The water didn't just drain away in a matter of a few hours. The Bible tells us that it was a period of several months. So everything that was changing on the face of the earth with regard to the ultimate bodies of water that were going to remain, that was all happening fairly gradually. Well, that seems very reasonable. So let's move on to talking about the animals that did get on the ark. Sheldon's comment aside, there were a lot of animals that did get on the ark. How many likely made it, and how did they all fit? So that question obviously has two parts, the number of animals and the size of the boat. Well, we've discussed in previous life lessons with a laugh that the ark was an enormous ship. Since the dimensions of the ark that are given in Scripture are given in cubits, we can't be exactly sure what the precise size was, but we can make some pretty good estimates. A cubit was considered to be the length of a man's forearm. So most scholars reckon that the cubit was somewhere between 18 inches and 21 inches. But a very skilled biblical scholar, Dr. Gleason Archer, in his book, An Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, Dr. Archer thinks that the cubit back in Noah's day may have been as much as 24 inches because we have some indication from the Bible that in the pre-flood days, human beings were larger than they are today. So, Dr. Archer estimates that the ark could have had as much as 3.6 million cubic feet. Now, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, again, another very skilled biblical scholar, in his Genesis commentary called the Genesis account, he uses an 18-inch cubit rather than a 24-inch cubit. And even at this smaller cubit size, Dr. Sarfati notes that the ark had a carrying capacity that was equivalent to over 340 semi-trailers. And Dr. Sarfati notes that even if we apply current space regulations that are used for animal transport, the ark could transport at least 19,000 sheep. So under the most conservative estimates, the ark had a huge amount of space, especially when you remember that the Lord told Noah to build the ark with three decks. But when it comes to actually fitting the animals in, it's important to understand a basic point. The Hebrew word that is used to instruct Noah about which animals to bring on the ark is the word min. In some earlier English translation, the word min was mistranslated as the word species. The more proper translation should be into the English word kind, and that's the way most translations have it today. So as we heard in our opening scripture in the New International Version, Genesis chapter 7 verses 1 through 3 reads, quote, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth, unquote. So in terms of modern taxonomy, what does the word kind mean? Well, the biblical term kind does not correspond exactly 
to any of the taxonomic levels that we currently use. But as you've noted, it does not correspond to what we would refer to as a species. The current taxonomy hierarchy has eight ranks that go from general to the specifics, and these are the domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Now, most creationist biologists believe that the biblical kind falls somewhere between a family and a genus. When the Bible uses the word kind, the Bible is simply referring to animals that can breed together and produce fertile offspring. In other words, the biblical term kind is a functional definition rather than a categorical definition. Now, this is a key point because it will eliminate a lot of confusion if people just get away from the notion that somehow Noah was instructed to take a breeding pair of every kind of species of land animal on the earth. That's just not the case. Now, this distinction that the biblical term kind refers to reproductive activity and not what might be termed external morphology, this kind of distinction might be true in a lot of cases that might surprise people. Such is the fact that many different types of dogs and cats are known as separate species, but they can in fact reproduce together. It's well known that aside from the size limitations, many different varieties of dogs can interbreed, and there are some more exotic examples. Lions and tigers are definitely different species, but they have been successfully bred together to produce a liger, or a tigon, depending on whether the male is a lion or a tiger. It's hardly likely that only one pair of breeding felines, or breeding canines, was actually brought on board. Take dogs, for example. Noah didn't have to take two cocker spaniels, two collies, two red setters, etc. He would have needed just one pair of dogs, like the wolf kind, with much genetic variation, somewhat like mongrels today. Just understanding this helps to show that the Bible's instruction to Noah about the animals was reasonable, but that still leaves open the question of exactly how many animals were on the ark. Well, there's not uniformity in the opinions of biblical scholars on the exact number for a variety of reasons, part of which relates to exactly how many kinds of animals there would have been on the earth at that time. But let's think about some of the issues that arise when we're talking about that question. First, there are actually many more different kinds of animals around in Noah's day than there are today, because some of the kinds of animals that lived then are extinct today. I mean, at a minimum, we know from fossil evidence that there are a number of different kinds of animals that existed in the past that don't exist today. Dinosaurs, for instance. Dinosaurs being on the ark raises a whole other set of questions. Yes, it does. And we'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's get back to the basic numbers question. As we've mentioned, the actual number of animals Noah put on board depends on what a biblical kind is. Now, John Woodmorap was an author and a teacher who had degrees in biology and geology. And he wrote a book entitled, Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study. Now, Woodmorap calculated that the number of animals would have been less than 16,000 if a biblical kind is roughly equivalent to the group of animals that we call a genus today. However, if the biblical kind is equivalent to the family level of taxonomy, then there would have only been about 2,000 animals. So the actual number of animals on the ark was probably somewhere in between 2,000 and 16,000. 
So even if the actual number of animals on the ark were on the higher side, the ark would still have had adequate carrying capacity? Absolutely. As we noted earlier, just based on space, the ark could have transported at least 19,000 sheep, and that's even applying today's current space regulatory requirements that apply to animal transport, and even using the most conservative estimate of how long a cubit was. But obviously, most land-dwelling animals today aren't anywhere near the size of a sheep. I mean, when you're talking about species, there's only about 290, 300 or so main types of land animals that are larger than a sheep. And there are about another 700 to 750 that range in size from sheep to rats. And there are about 1,300 to 1,400 types of land animals that are smaller than a rat. So most of the animals on board the ark would have easily been housed in small enclosures. They were nowhere near the size of a sheep. In fact, the average size of all the animals that would have been on the ark would have been about the size of a rabbit. Even large animals, such as the biggest dinosaurs, began their lives as small creatures. So in selecting creatures to repopulate the earth, it would have made a lot more sense to choose the animals that were younger, healthier, and smaller rather than the older, mature ones. So, let's get back to the dinosaur question. I'm gathering that most creationist scientists believe that there were dinosaurs on the ark. Yes. Most creationist biologists, just about all of them, believe that there were dinosaurs on the ark. I mean, we know that dinosaurs existed, and because of the fossil evidence that we know many, though not all dinosaurs, were land-dwelling and air-breathing. So Noah would have brought a breeding pair of each kind of dinosaur on board. And despite the scenes that they show in the science fiction movies, most dinosaurs started out life as relatively small creatures. The largest dinosaur eggs that have ever been found are only about the size of a football, and there's a very good scientific reason for that. In order for an embryo inside the dinosaur egg to survive, air has to be able to permeate through the shell. Well, for an egg to be structurally sound and much bigger than a football, the eggshell would have to be so thick that the air wouldn't be able to penetrate the eggshell. So it is overwhelmingly likely that even the largest dinosaurs started life as creatures that the ark could easily accommodate. And it's also well known that even though dinosaurs started small, they went through growth spurts to get big. For example, the Apatosaurus, which was known to be about 25 tons when it was fully mature, was only about one ton when it was five years old. And then between the ages of five and 12, it grew about five tons a year before it leveled off at its adult weight. So from what we know now scientifically about the dinosaurs, there are no physical or biological impediments to dinosaurs being included on the ark. And for any listener who would like more information about dinosaurs being on the ark, we have an entire episode of Anchored by Truth in which we discuss this subject. The episode was part of our Truth in Genesis series, and it was entitled Dinosaur Duplicity. Anyone who wants more information can just go to our website, or the episode is available through most major podcasting apps. So, let's get to another question. How about insects? I think a lot of people would have been happy if they had been left off the passenger manifest. And in fact, insects weren't on the original passenger manifest. The Hebrew text tells us that the animals that Noah was supposed to include on the ark included the land animals and birds that breathed through nostrils. Well, insects don't have nostrils, 
so Noah wasn't instructed to bring them on board. But it's still pretty likely that many insects were able to climb on board and stowed away throughout the entire voyage. It's also very likely that a lot of the different kinds of insects that were around at that time survived on islands that were made out of floating debris. I mean, there would have been a lot of debris in the water as all the plants, trees, everything that was on land were being dislodged by these massive floods and tides. And so it would have been fairly easy for there to have been plenty of floating debris for the insects to climb on board and survive. And in fact, being transported on floating debris is one of the ways that insects have been able to so effectively spread themselves around the world, even among different bodies of land that are widely separated by water. So that brings up the question of how did the animals spread all over the earth when they all got off a single boat that likely landed somewhere in what today we call the Mideast? Obviously, there are animals that are present on islands or continents that are pretty remote from the place where the ark must have landed. Well, there are two main possibilities. Land bridges between spreading tectonic plates or animals being transported on vegetation mats that was being scraped off the surface of the earth by the floodwaters. Initially, as the final shape of the earth was being formed, there were probably still some land bridges between various islands and the continental coast, and those land bridges have subsequently submerged. After all, we know that at one time there were cities in various places around the earth that at one point were above the water, like Alexandria and Egypt, that have since been submerged. And in terms of there being vegetation mats that could be used to float animals from one continent to another, We know that in six out of the seven continents that are on Earth today, there are actually floating islands that are found. Matter of fact, there are floating islands found on every continent but Antarctica. In Peru, there's an entire group of people called the Euros that live on floating islands. They live on about 40 floating islands that are found on Lake Titicaca. Well, that makes sense. But I guess that leads to the next question. If Noah brought only one pair of a particular kind, how did we wind up with all the different species of animals that we have today? Well, the kind of animals that were on the ark developed into the contemporary species that we have today through the adaptation that was built into their original DNA. Contrary to popular belief, informed creationists do not dispute that natural selection is an adaptive process that permits the development of new species. It's just that these new species always remain within their original created kind. In fact, natural selection as an adaptive force was recognized by scientists who believed in biblical creation before Charles Darwin ever popularized the concept in 1859. In 1668, that's almost 200 years before Darwin wrote the book, There was an Anglican bishop named John Wilkins, who is the founder of the metric system, and he was the first secretary of the British Academy of Science, the Royal Society. Bishop Wilkins argued that all the varieties of cattle that existed in his day, including the American buffalo or bison, would have arisen from cattle ancestors that were on the ark. And then Wilkins had a contemporary, a German Jesuit scholar named Kircher, who had the same idea and Kircher expressed his idea about natural selection or adaptation when he illustrated a book on Noah's art. Kircher expressed the idea that he believed that all of our modern species had developed by transmutation within a definite series of forms. 
And the fact that the creationist biologists knew about natural selection was even acknowledged by evolutionary biologist and paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould. Gould acknowledges that natural selection had ranked as a standard item in biological discourse among pre-Darwinian creationists. So, informed creationists don't disagree that species can develop, again, within their kind, and so all the different species around the Earth today arose from that group of animals that descended from the Ark. I guess then that there are two final questions. First, what did all the animals eat while they were on the Ark? We know that today there are many animals that are primarily meat-eaters, but that certainly wouldn't have worked on the Ark. No, it wouldn't have worked on the ark for the animals that are today carnivorous to have eaten the other animals, obviously. But we have to remember that all animals were originally designed as plant eaters. We know that from Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. And it's well known today that even animals that are primarily meat eaters can survive only on plants. I mean, a lot of people will live their entire lives today as vegans or vegetarians with no adverse health effects, and they might contend that they're even healthier. There's also a very famous lion called Leah, who was raised in Italy on a diet of potatoes, green vegetables, and cheesy pasta. And in the last decade, it's been discovered that there were a lot of dinosaurs they didn't think that ate grass that actually did eat grass because there have been different kinds of grasses that have been found in fossilized dinosaur dung. Now, the grasses being found in fossilized dinosaur dung is a real problem for the evolutionary time frame because supposedly dinosaurs had died out millions of years before the first grasses were ever thought to have evolved. One final question then. Why did Noah bring seven pairs of clean animals, but only one pair of unclean animals? Well, this was a time before the Mosaic Law had been given, But evidently, even in that day, God had designated certain animals as being acceptable for use as sacrifices. Clean animals could be used for sacrifices, so Noah brought more clean animals on board because some would have been used for sacrifices immediately after the ark landed, and even if some were sacrificed, that would still have left breeding pairs available to reproduce their kind. So, notwithstanding Sheldon's obvious skepticism about the accuracy of the Bible's flood story, there are sensible answers to the questions that most people might have. And as we observed before, these answers make sense in the real world. They are consistent with current observations about science and geography and biology, and how the world just functions in general. In other words, the Bible flood account has all the hallmarks of history, so it serves to validate the accuracy and reliability of the Bible, even when the Bible describes events that are outside our normal experiences today. It's a good idea to remember that all this information is available because there are faithful Christian scientists and researchers who have been willing to dedicate their lives to the pursuit of truth. They have done this even though they are well aware that the popular culture may be hostile to their findings. All this points to the need to both support their efforts and to be faithful steward of the resources God has entrusted to us. So, today, let's pray that we would all be faithful stewards, recognizing that our Heavenly Father is the real source of all our blessings. Prayer to be a faithful steward. Almighty, everlasting, and eternal Father, you are the rock. 
the only sure foundation on which we can build and hope to have our work survive. You alone can weave the twisted strands of our lives into a whole cloth that is suitable for your purposes. You alone are the sure and steady hand that preserves us from falling into the snares of the enemy and holds us up when we stumble. Lord, your word rightly tells us that the entire world and all it contains belong to you. It is so easy for us to forget this as we rush to and fro in our daily lives. As we go to our jobs, purchase items at the store, visit banks, and struggle with checkbooks and price tags, we easily forget that none of what passes through our hands truly belongs to us. You own it all, and no amount of striving or pulling can change this fact. Help us, Lord, to release what we cannot hold. Incline our hearts to you so that we treasure the blesser far more than the blessings. Our confidence is in him, and it is in his precious name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.